Well, it is always a privilege to be here with you, whether you're on our Canandaigua campus, online campus, or Hopewell campus. We are continuing through our series. We're still in Romans 9 through 16. We're calling the series Metamorphosis. We have three weeks of this series left. It's hard to believe, but we actually, in four weeks, will be Easter. Isn't that crazy? In three weeks, like that weekend is like, is, is like spring. So spring is in the air. I don't know about you, but that excites me. Uh, we're in this mini-series amidst this this larger series, so 10 weeks in the second part of the book of Romans, but the last three weeks we've been looking at Paul's writing on a Christian's responsibility to other believers, really wrapped around these two words, unity and love. And so Paul has been teaching us how we as a church family can be united in his love, even though we have differences, even though we have differences. And as we come in this morning, we all have differences. I mean, we... we we could name all of them, but really when we look at scripture, what we have in common is much more powerful than what we have different. And so God calls us to unity. I came across this account. It's been said that when the British and French were fighting in Canada in the 1750s, that Admiral Phipps was giving uh, an order to go in and take the Navy and wait until the land forces arrived and then support the land force invasion of Quebec. And while Admiral Phipps was, was waiting for the land forces to arrive, the Navy got there early. He looked at a particular cathedral, and over a period of time, we don't know why, but he became very annoyed at the statue of saints that were on this cathedral. And so he ordered the ships to, to open fire on, on these statues. And, and so we don't know how much they fired on these statues, but when the land forces got there and the signal was given for Admiral Phipps and the Navy to assist the the British, and, and, and to go into Quebec, they were of no help at all. They had used almost all their ammo firing at the saints. And, and I, was, I was just thinking of that story, and, and I thought, unfortunately, at times, churches act the same way. Instead of experiencing the unity and peace that, that Christ calls us to, they, they fight, they skirmish over petty issues. And then when God calls them to do something great, Unfortunately, they don't have much to offer because they've used all their ammunition suiting at the saints, each other. And really, when we think about that, we then as a church become depleted, as Christians were depleted, and actually, I think even worse, the church is disgraced in view of the world. And I want to share this morning that God has a better plan. God has a much better plan than that. And it's very important that Christians learn to get along with one another. I came across this dog I sort of thought it was funny, but then as I read, I thought it's a little tragically funny. To live above with the saints we love, oh, that will be glory. But to live below with the saints we know, well, that's another story. I went there, I thought, oh my, help us, help us. So the questions we've been looking at over the past three weeks from Paul's writing in the book of Romans is really questions such as how do we deal with the differences of opinion about minor issues that, that could separate us as Christians? How should we get along? How, what are the, the God-given techniques? What are the biblical examples? And of course, we've been looking at principles of Christian freedom, that we understand that in Christ, we have freedom. There, there's a lot we're able to do. Uh, although in Scripture, there are things we're commanded to do and then things we're prohibited to do, there's still much freedom in Scripture. And, and yet, even with that freedom, we want to use it wisely. And, and so Paul has already shared with us that the stronger in the faith should accommodate the weaker in the faith. And again, that stronger doesn't mean 
like we're closer to Jesus, that stronger is talking about our understanding of biblical truth, biblical doctrine. And so it's saying those who have a better understanding of biblical doctrine shouldn't flaunt that in the face of those who don't. In fact, we're to be watchful, Paul wrote. We looked at that last week. We're to be watchful of them, making sure that what we do doesn't cause them to stumble. Now, when we look at these things, we're really talking about this area that theologians call the adiaphora. And adiaphora is, is those areas in our life that, that when we look and say, what would God have me do? And, and yet it's not something that's prohibited in Scripture and not something commanded in Scripture. It's sort of in that gray area. And so we looked at a couple of questions that we could ask when we find ourselves in a situation where we're really not sure whether we should do or not do something. And the first one was, am I acting out of faith or in doubt? Have you ever as a believer been in this situation and just said, I just don't know if I should do this? And I shared last week, if in doubt, what? Back out, right? If in doubt, back out. Just don't do it. It's not worth it. The second one is this. Does the action strengthen or lessen another believer's walk with God? In other words, if I'm about to do something and it would cause somebody else in, in the faith to stumble, it's just not worth doing in front of them. And you remember one of the illustrations that Paul uses from the church there in Rome was the eating of meat because of the Jewish believers wanting to keep it kosher and the Gentile believers not needing to do that, but it was causing divisions as they would come together and eat. And, and if I could just sort of paraphrase Paul's teaching, he'd say, go eat your pork roast at home, don't do it at church. Don't do it where it's going to cause someone to stone. It's just not worth that. Unity and love and peace is, is, is really more important. So let's look at what Paul continues to write as he sort of finishes up this section on the Christian's responsibility toward one another. But before we do, remember, before we dump in, that Paul's writing this, taking for granted that the believers who are reading this have already read and understood Romans 12.1, that we're to present our bodies as a living sacrifice to God, that we're to give them our whole selves. And, and, and so, by the way, to do that is a very humble position of the heart, isn't it? And it's easier to love others with, with humility when, we, when we're sort of bowing in our heart before God. So he's, he's taking for granted. Uh, Romans 12.1 is something that's happening within the life of a believer. We're offering our bodies as a living sacrifice. But he's also taking for granted that Romans 13.18 is happening in a believer's life. Romans 13.18 says, Owe nothing to anyone except for love. And, and so as we jump into the passage this morning, let, let's keep in the back of our head that Paul really believes that, that if you've given yourself to God and you have this desirous expressed a love in your life that you want to share with others, then what he's about to teach should, should flow out of the spirit that inhabits us. So let's start. Let's jump in. Practices of Christian freedom. Let's begin by looking at our obligation, Romans 15, 1 and 2. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. So it's interesting. The strong and again, strong in the understanding of biblical doctrine. The strong ought not to despise the weak, those who have a lesser understanding of biblical doctrine, uh, but they're to tolerate and accept them. Another way of putting that is that the stronger Christian uh, is to be understanding of the weaker one. Now, when I use that word understanding, if you were to go to the dictionary, there are several definitions of the word understanding. I'm talking about being friendly, living in harmony with. And so a stronger Christian is to really receive, if you will, 
uh, the, the weaker one in this understanding of friendship. And Leviticus 19 urges believers, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. And when we look at this, we can understand, why did Paul in verse 2 use the word neighbor? Because he wanted us to understand by seeking the good of the weak and not just pleasing ourselves by using our liberty in Christ in a way, any way we wish, we will love our neighbors. Now, who's our neighbors? Everyone. We'll love everyone and fulfill Christ's law, the law of love. Do you remember the law of love? Jesus uh, speaks it to us. Matthew records it for us, Matthew 22, 37 through 39. He's questioned, Christ is, what is the greatest commandment? And so listen to what he says. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's, It's the law of love. And if we truly love God with everything and love others as we love ourselves, then we'll build them up and not tear them down. I I think it's interesting in Scripture that that self-love is not something that's taught against but taught for. We're just to love ourselves rightly. In other words, we should be somewhat comfortable in our own skin, the way God's created us and our wiring. And and the way that we would care for ourselves, we should care for another person. And when I think about that, it it cries unity. It it cries peace. It, It cries love. Like, I've never woken up in the morning and said, you know what would be great if I could be put down a couple times today? Anyone ever thought that? I'm just feeling so good. If someone could come and just sort of tear me down a little bit, that would be great. None of us have ever thought that. If you had, please come see me. You need some prayer. No, no, no. But we wake up sometimes and we're like, man, I just need some encouragement. Ever been there? I just need some encouragement. And so, and so what is Paul writing here? Paul's saying, listen, when you look at Christ's example, then, then we're going to build each other up. We're not going to fight over petty issues. We're going to try to look for the good in others. Like, it, it, we're not talking about not keeping each other accountable, but if we're not keeping each other accountable in love, then we're not keeping each other accountable in the way that Christ would call us to. Like, if we're keeping each other accountable, it should be because we believe in the other person. Come on, church. Sometimes I think we like to keep each other, people accountable because we feel better about ourselves if we can find something wrong in someone else. That's not helping anybody. No, no, no. God says, be comfortable in your skin. Know who I made you to be. Know that the, my spirit indwells you. And in that power, build each other up. This is our obligation to one another as Christians. And who then is our model? What's well, interesting, not only did Jesus give us the law of love, he's our model of love. Look at Romans 15, 3 and 4. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, and that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Psalm 69, 9 will be very familiar after reading that verse, that passage we just read. Psalm 69, 9 reads, The zeal for your house has consumed me and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Psalm 69 has been called the Psalm of the Righteous Sufferer, and the New Testament writers identify Jesus Christ as the ultimate righteous sufferer. And so here's here's Jesus. And when he comes, what's he do? He humbles himself. He he comes to earth. And and again, I say this so much, but, but it is really one of those truths that never ceased to sort of blow my mind a little bit. 
that the creator of the universe, God, humbles himself. If anyone doesn't need to humble themselves, it's God, right? God has the right to be God, whatever he wants. And when people give me a picture of God that's so outside of scripture, I go, no, no, we worship a humble God who, who left the splendor of heaven. And, and what did Jesus do? He, he said, those who reproach you, Father God, are gonna reproach the Son. And, and he dies on the cross for our sins. Think about that. The insults against God, the Father fell on Christ. Jesus Christ is our example of self-denying love, being willing to endure the curse of sin rather than please himself. Like Jesus didn't have to die on the cross, but because of his love for us, he chose to. Humbled himself. Was worth it to him. And not only is Christ our model, but the, but the word tells us, we just read that passage, the word is our model as well. In other words, the word of God teaches us what it means to live like Christ lived. As we study the scriptures, we're aided in the developing of patience toward our brother and sister, as well as provide comfort in difficulties. As a result, what happens? Our, our relationship with Christ becomes more robust. And as our relationship with Christ becomes more robust, our ability to get along with others increases. Another way of saying that is as we seek to master God's word, what happens? God's word masters us, doesn't it? As we approach it and allow the spirit to, to work in our life, then, then as we're trying to master, we want to, we want to live according to God's word, it, it begins to consume us. And we grow in our relationship with Jesus, which increases our capacity to walk like Jesus. I, I've said this before. I've said, you know, I, if I don't spend time in the word in the morning, no one else is really going to know it. I mean, just one day, you're not going to know it. And I might not either. In two days, I'm going to know it. That's just my own self. I don't know what your walk, like, what Christ is like, but if I like avoid it for two days, it's like all of a sudden, I know it. Like I start, After three days, everyone knows it. You know, it's just everyone knows it. You know, there's something about the discipline of having God's word spoken into my life every morning to get my day going and then having those words running through my mind that I'm able to surrender that to the spirit and say, Lord, I want to master your word, knowing that what, really what I'm praying is, Lord, may your word master me. I can become more and more like Christ. So this model of Christ found in the, in the Bible through the cooperation of the Spirit empowers us to not just understand who Christ was, but to really begin to walk the way he did. And what a profound walk. Jesus hanging on the cross. Do you remember his words? What did he say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. <laughs> the scripture tells us that he could have called down legions to defend himself. And I've often said this because without God in my life, it would be a very bad scenario if I was the one hanging on the cross for any of you. I'm just being honest. Come on, put yourself there. You have, a legion, you have legions of angels. How many of you think at one point, maybe in the pain, you may go, okay, sick them? And the God who spoke the world into existence, who could have changed everything like that, understands the necessity of the cross, not for him, but for us. And he cries out, Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. I mean, what an example. And as believers, we follow Christ's example and teaching when we allow his spirit to, to mold us into his image. We call that sanctification. That we become like Jesus, how? In his character. And we become like Jesus in his love. And we become like Jesus in, in his 
in his purpose, and we become like Jesus in his priorities. But, but that the Lord does this work in us, and our understanding of fellow believers then allows us to fulfill our goal when we think about it of, of what God is doing in us as, as a family of God. And, and really, what is our community goal? It, it's, it's oneness. That, that Jesus died on the cross so we would be made right with God and have a oneness with our brothers and sisters. That it's interesting to me that we talk much in church about belonging to God when we become a believer, but guess what? We also belong to one another. Like, like it or not, if you're a Christian in here, I'm your brother. You say, well, I didn't choose you. Oh, but you did. When you said yes to Jesus, we chose each other. And our community goal is oneness. Look at Romans 15, 5, and 6. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's powerful. Paul does not require absolute uniformity of thinking, as if Christians needed to be some type of, of clone. Think about that. Isn't that good news? If we were all like, how boring would that be? Never, you know, he doesn't ever write about us never disagreeing about anything. Rather, we discover that our unity is found in our spirit and our attitude and an underlying sense of belonging to each other and loving each other that creates this loving context to the differences that will inevitably exist among us. That's a lengthy way of saying that because of who we are in Jesus, that overrides any petty issues we may have. Like it, it does. And that's why I've been saying throughout these, especially these past three weeks, that these, these relationship principles that apply to the body of Christ applies to really almost any relationship we have. Like, like in a marriage relationship, yeah, I'll go there. If we've given ourselves to God as a living sacrifice and we owe nothing to anyone except love, which means we owe love to our spouse and our spouse owes love to us, and we have this humble posture with God and we understand that that there were brothers and sisters in Christ. I know that may seem a little weird, but it's true, that, that my wife Krista is my sister in Christ and I am her brother, then, then, then the very spirit of God can have us overlook petty issues and be able to worship God together as a couple. And, and that's why I've said my, my relationship with my spouse, my relationship with Krista goes better when I'm surrendered to Jesus. And when I'm less than that, a.k.a. a jerk, it's because I've gotten my eyes off Christ and put it solely on me. See, when our eyes are on Christ, then we can play a game called, let's see who can outlove the other. But when our eyes are on ourselves and we play a game called, let's see who can serve me best. Come on, don't judge me. If you're married, you've been there. If not, come up to me afterwards and tell me how you've never been there. Okay? And then I'll pray for you. When we exhibit this kind of united spirit, now we're back to the church. The church can glorify God as he desires to be glorified. Think about it. His people are unable to, to surpass their differences and be united in praise and worship. The faithful endurance and encouragement believers receive from the scriptures comes ultimately from God. So it's not our strength, it's God's strength in us. That's when a person says, I don't think I can do that. I go, well, you can't, but you plus God is a majority, and you can. Come on, church. 
If we try to live the life God's called us to in our own strength, we will fail. And if we try to live the life that God's called us to with the power of the Holy Spirit, we'll have moments of success. We'll still struggle, not because God's not perfect, because I'm not. And I'm growing. I'm growing. Since after the Bible is God's word, then it only makes sense that as we spend time in his word and the spirit allows that word to come alive within us, that a spirit of unity would, would, would have to burst out from us as church. The ultimate purpose of this unity was that, that Christians would, would be able to keep glorifying God together, that there would be this inward expression, this inward feeling that would become an outward expression, which, by the way, is, is the core truth of, of all of biblical workings in our life. That it begins inwardly. And there's inward feeling, and I don't mean feeling in the sense of touchy-feely. I just mean there's, there's a stirring up within us that, that, it, that eventually changes the way we live. Romans 12.1, we present our bodies as a living sacrifice. But we've looked at Romans 12.2, it says, then what? We're not conformed to the pattern of the world. We're renewed. There's this transformation from within, from our very mind, our very being that makes us more and more like Jesus. Is that not the hope we offer the world? That in Christ we can be more because God created us to be more, but we can't be more without him. We can only be more with him. So it's not about us, it's about him. Our common goal is oneness. And in the following passage, we'll find that, that this, this oneness is, is really backed by this fact that we can accept one another because after all, Jesus has accepted us. When everything is said and done, our larger focus is really about Jesus. And Christians must accept one another because he has accepted us. It's, it's all about Jesus. Romans 15, 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And Romans 15, 7 really neatly summarizes all of 14, 1 through 15, 13. Receive one another then just as Christ has received you. And when Christ received us, he, he received us fully, didn't he? There's no partial receiving. Sometimes we live like that, but it's not true. When we came to Christ, he received us totally as part of the family of God. And, and the challenge then is that we receive one another fully as brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul reminds us again that, that the model of this acceptance is Jesus Christ who accepted us and Paul, back in chapter 5, used some very interesting descriptive words to say, when Jesus accepted us, what were we like? Because I'll hear people say something like this, I just need to clean myself up before I come to Jesus. And I'll say, well, you'll never come to him then, because only he can help you clean up. Right, church? And so what were we like when Jesus received us? Romans 5. Here's some words. Jesus received us when we were powerless. Well, you say, I'm not powerless. Oh, but you are. You just don't know it. Jesus received us, Romans again, when we were weak. You say, well, I don't feel weak. Well, yeah, we're weak. We're weak without Christ. We're not right with God without Christ. Listen, Jesus accepted us when we were ungodly. Jesus received us when we were sinners. And here's the one out of Romans 5. It really gets me. Jesus received me when I was still his enemy wanting nothing to do with him. He died on the cross when all those things were true. And, and Paul is, is, is saying to us, if Christ can do that, then by the power of his spirit, I bet we can do that to one another over petty issues. 
I bet we can. I bet we can get over ourselves. Why did Jesus receive us? He received us so that we could glorify God. That, that, that in our love for one another, we could glorify God. Glorifying God is the purpose of Christian unity. Through the power of oneness in Christ and together through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can, we can fulfill our larger goal. And, and that larger goal is serving unreached people. So you go, well, wait a minute, what, what's happening? There's, there's this, 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 this effect of, of, of just growing to this point of realizing that Christ came to save us and that glorifies the Father, right? And, and, and he saves us so that we can live as one with him and each other so that those who are yet far from God but so close to his heart will come to know him. Isn't that a beautiful picture of God? People say, well, when I came to Jesus, why didn't God take me right now? Because you're not ready. And the world around you needs you. Think about that. I point at this quite a bit because it just sort of is an amazing thing, but one of the greatest apologetics for the church is our love for one another. Jesus in the high priestly prayer prayed. And he said, God, their love for one another will show the world why I came. But the world would see a unity within God's church and would hunger for that. Like, why is that there? How can that be possible? And if there was ever a time in our culture where the church needs to be a picture of unity and love. It's today. The God-given apologetic that people would say, I want that, I need that. And we say, well, let me, thanks for asking. Let me tell you how you can do it. Look at Romans 15, 8 through 13. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to, be, to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. And then this beautiful benediction prayer in verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Paul sums up why Jesus came. And he says, listen, Jesus came really for two objectives, and they're both accomplished fully in Jesus' ministry. The first, Jesus came to fulfill God's promises to the Jewish people. He came as a Jew to fulfill his promise to the Jewish people. Secondly, Jesus came so that the Gentiles might receive God's mercy. In essence, how do we sum that? Jesus came so all of us can find salvation in him. And to fulfill what was God's plan from the very beginning. In fact, there's four verses quoted from the Old Testament in verses 9 through 12, but affirms God's plan. And, and these four Old Testament passages are, are from all three divisions of the Old Testament. We have the law of Moses. We, we have the historical books, uh, the quotes from David, and then we have uh, the prophetic books through Isaiah. What, what am I getting at? That Paul brilliantly wants us to understand that throughout the whole Old Testament was this plan that God would bring salvation to everyone, Jews and Gentiles, non-Jews alike, and, and that his whole purpose in coming was fulfilled through him. And, and you can just picture Paul, as this is being written, as these words are coming out of his mouth, 
verse 13 is really this, this, this like he can't control himself. And he just prays. May the God of hope fill you with joy and peace and believing so that the power of the Holy Spirit may abound in you in hope. Can you picture it? Paul is praying for us 2,000 years ago. And his prayer for us is that we be filled with hope and by the power of the Holy Spirit that we be filled with this peace and this joy. And I just want to say that peace and joy are so closely tied to hope that hope and joy and peace can't be separated. Joy is related to the delight and anticipation in seeing our hopes fulfilled, and peace results from the assurance that God will fulfill those hopes. There's a circular thing that happens in hope and peace and joy. If you're looking to a future where God doesn't exist, you don't have hope. And if you don't have hope, you don't have peace, and if you don't have peace, you don't have joy. In fact, when I begin to worry and fret about things in the future, I realize that my, my eyes have gotten off of Christ. That, that although if you were to ask me, I would say, well, of course he's a good God. Of course he's the good shepherd. But if I'm fearing, then, then even though I'm saying it, somewhere in my heart I'm thinking, but maybe he's only somewhat good. Ever been there, I got this appointment coming up. Nervous about that appointment. Why? Because I don't think God's already at that appointment. He's already got me covered. It may not look the way I want it to look, but God is good, so I know he's going to take care of me. He may not like, take care of me the way I write it down on a sheet of paper. He may not live up to all my, my suggestions. But he's God, and I'm not. And Maybe I just need to trust that he knows what's better than I do. Oh, but when we believe God is who he says he is and that hope wells up within us, it, it produces in us a joy that only he can give and a peace that, that we can only live in him. So by trusting in God, the Roman Christians and each of us will find that the Holy Spirit produces us this overflow of hope, joy, and peace in our lives. See, God always blesses us to be a blessing. And so he doesn't just give us a little bit. He gives us an overflow of these things so the world around us will get a taste of it themselves. You ever been around someone with hope? A little contagious, isn't it? How about joy? Now, sometimes, let's be honest, if you really want to be in the dumps and someone has joy, it irritates you. Like, what are you happy about? But if you really want joy and you're around someone with joy, it, what's it do? It, stir, it stirs you up a little bit. How about peace? How about peace? I think of Wesley who was coming across to the Georgia colony and there's some Moravians on that boat and a storm hits. And Wesley isn't really sure of his salvation yet. Like I, I think when you look at his journal, he was a believer, but he just didn't understand that when you say yes to Jesus, it's a full yes, right? And he's questioning some of that in his own life. And he sees a storm and he goes, I think we're all going to die. Now he's a preacher, right? So He's actually going as a missionary. So you'd expect him to say, but that's okay because dying's a good thing, would be with Jesus. But he is scared out of his mind, and I think we're, we're not going to judge him for that, right? But the Moravians are worshiping. And he actually, he's a little irritated by it at first. How can you be worshiping God? Do you not see the storm all around you? Then he's brought into their worship a little bit because they got a perspective of God I need to get. They got a view of life I need to get. And the world outside these walls is dying to see an example so that they can say, they see the world differently than I do. 
there's something in them I need to get. And this is what Paul is writing about. So when we look at what Paul has written over the past three weeks and actually in the whole of, of Romans itself, here's the issue. Do you know Jesus and are you making him known? Like th- th- that, those two questions really answer a lot of these things for us. Do you know Jesus? Not just about him, are you walking with him? Is he your Savior and Lord? And, and are you making him known? I, I don't know how you can really know Christ without making him known. A.W. Tozer once said, he said, if the only time you worship God on Sundays, you're not worshiping God at all. He said, the worship that, that God calls us to is a seven days a week life worship. A life worship every day. Lord, I, I give myself to you anew as a living sacrifice. Remember what that one theologian said? I, I, I said it when we got to Romans 12. I loved it. It was one of my favorite lines ever in a commentary. He said, the problem with a living sacrifice is it can crawl off the altar. Ever been there? That's why I've told you, it's not just a morning thing I say to the Lord, Lord, I'm yours. I've got to remind myself throughout the day, Lord, I'm still yours. I'm still yours. I know I walked away, I'm yours. I'm yours. And when we're growing in Christ, it's the Spirit of God uses us to make him known to those around us. And there's a oneness that we experience in his church. During World War II, Hitler commanded all the churches in Germany to be united. He wanted them all under one umbrella so he could have power over them, so he could control them. And half the churches in Germany went along with it, half the churches did not. The churches who went along with his plan actually welled fairly okay under Hitler. Those that did not were greatly persecuted. In fact, in those churches, almost in every family, at least somebody had someone who died in a concentration camp. When the war was over, there was this huge tension between the body of Christ and Germany. A, a, a great unrest between those who, 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 who went with Hitler's plan and those who didn't. And some of the church leaders realized there needed to be some healing. And so they called upon this national retreat where many church leaders came together from both groups. And for several days, several days, all they did was spend time in solitude, prayer, and studying God's word, confessing their hurts, confessing their sins. And Francis Schaeffer, who writes of, of this incident, says he asked a friend who was there. He asked a friend who was there. After several days of solitude, spending time in prayer and God's word and, and asking God to do something in your hearts, when you came together, what happened? And his friend said, we were just one. We were just one, he said. When they confessed their hostility and bitterness to God and yielded to his control, unity broke out among them. That's the power of God. That's the ability of our good, good God. That when we allow his love to fill our hearts, hatred, hatred's dissolved. When love prevails among believers, especially in times of strong disagreement, it presents the world with this indisputable mark of Jesus. Yet when the church is divided and Love isn't prevailing. It gives the world such a different picture. And the real question this morning is this. Here's the real question. Which will we as crosswinds choose? I mean, really, which will we choose as crosswinds? We're just one clan among the big tribe, you know? But we are a clan. And what will we choose? Rupertus Melodinius. I'm sure I just sacrificed his name. 
but he was a Lutheran theologian and educator from the 17th century. He declared something that may be familiar to, to some of you. He wrote, in essentials, unity, and non-essentials, liberty, and all things, charity. Well, what's he saying? We must never, never, never compromise the gospel, church. Never compromise the gospel. We don't compromise the gospel to be united. It's not loving not to stand on the truth because it's the truth that brings the love of Christ to the world around us. But we must never, never, never allow petty, non-essential issues to bring disunity among us as his body. I pray we'll follow Paul's practices, if you will, of Christian freedom. I pray we'll understand that we'll be friendly, loving toward one another, that we'll be united in, in Christ and his hope and his peace. Such a church will prevail. Such a church will be able to share the hope and truth of Christ to the world around us. And as God unites us in our, in our gathering, this, this, what I like to call our weekend mission conference, when God unites us and encourages us in our gathering, it's so that when we scatter as everyday missionaries in our everyday mission fields of our homes, our schools, our workplaces, our neighborhoods, that the power of Christ will be seen. Do you know Jesus? Are you making him known? Are you one? Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we thank you so much for meeting with us in such an amazing way this morning. I can't help but think that the smile that's put on your face that when we come and worship you together, We come here not representing many differences, although we may have them. We come here representing you, that you're the unifying force, that we're one in Christ. And it's that oneness in you that, that gives us the ability to overlook offenses, to overlook differences, to realize that that one thing that we have in common it is so powerful, so powerful, that it is the source of our united hope and joy and peace that our accepting of one another comes from the fact that you've accepted us. And Lord, as we gather and look at your word together like this, we do so, like I said, as, as sort of a mission conference because in a few moments, we're gonna go out into the world and we wanna be able to be those everyday missionaries in our everyday mission fields, in our marriages, you know, in our homes, with our families, in our neighborhood, our workplace, our schools. God, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who's yet to receive you as Lord and Savior, but whether they're on this campus or online campus, at Hopewell campus, even now, but they would understand the great work that you did out of love for us, that you died on the cross for our sins, resurrected for our salvation, and that maybe even now in the quietness of their heart, they would receive you as Savior and Lord. But those of us who have done that, that maybe we'd be even more encouraged today than ever to, to live in that living hope, which is Christ our Savior, that we would allow that your peace and your joy would so consume us so the world around us would, would hunger for what we have. And that we would humbly be able to say it's available to them just as it's been available, made available to us. Thank you for loving us so completely, even with the list of, of the reality of who we were before coming to you that Paul shares in Romans 5. In spite of all those things, you received us because of your great love. We give you the praise and the glory for all you've done and all you're continuing to do in Jesus' name.